Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events and aspects of the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin, a former Naval Officer and Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. This series is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this episode, we will discuss the exploits of the submarine HMAS AE2 in World War I. In two previous episodes of Australian Naval History, we have discussed the 1914 loss and the 2018 relocation of her sister ship, HMAS AE1. To discuss this story, I'm joined by Mrs. Elizabeth Brenchley, who with her husband, Fred, wrote Stoker's Submarine, which vividly describes the exploits of HMAS AE2 and her commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Henry Stoker. Rear Admiral Peter Briggs, a distinguished retired submariner, who among his many achievements led the successful search for HMAS AE1. And Commander Greg Swindon, who now in a civilian capacity is a naval historian at the Sea Power Centre Australia. Greg co-authored the book First In, Last Out, which describes the REN's contribution to the Gallipoli campaign. Thank you all for joining me. So first off, Peter Briggs, can you describe for us HMAS AE2? Yes, at the time it was the state of the art, the most modern of the British submarines, and it was their main submarine in World War I. 800 tonnes, two diesel engines, which drove the propellers directly on the surface, dived, it had two electric motors and banks of batteries to drive it, uh, but a very limited range, about uh, 45 nautical miles. Uh, so so not, a, not a long range once, once the submarine was dived. Uh, it had two periscopes, which are critical to the, uh, the navigation, penetrating the Dardanelles, a magnetic uh, and a gyro compass to sense its direction. The gyro was very important because the magnetic was not that reliable as a source. Um, no sonars that we would understand today, no radars. So it was very, very dependent on what the captain of the submarine could see through his periscope to, to navigate. Uh, maximum diving depth of 100 feet, although AE2 exceeded that on a number of occasions. Uh, eight torpedoes carried four torpedo tubes and a reload for each. Uh, these are straight-running torpedoes with a range of about a thousand meters, uh, to, designed to obviously operate against surface ships. Elizabeth Brenchley, as we mentioned, her commanding officer was, was Lieutenant Commander Henry Stoker. What can you tell us about him? Henry Hugh Gordon Stoker, always known as Dacre Stoker, was born in Dublin, Ireland in February 1885. His father was a doctor from one of Dublin's most prestigious families of doctors, lawyers and writers. His uncle was Bram Stoker, author of Dracula. Dacre Stoker entered the Royal Navy at Dartmouth, serving first on HMS Implacable in the Mediterranean, where he formed a lifelong friendship with Prince Louis of Battenberg. He was a keen sportsman playing polo, cricket, football and tennis. He was socially popular and a self-confessed philanderer. Physically, Stoker was of slight build with angular features, lively eyes and with an ironic wit. He was also highly disciplined. He spoke beautifully 
and had a self-confident air of natural leadership. He was promoted sub-lieutenant in 1904 and after passing out from the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth in Greenwich, volunteered for the new submarine service. A major incentive being the money, but also the possibility of high adventure. He served first on Holland-class submarines before promoted lieutenant and assigned to an A-class next to B-class submarines. At 28, the already experienced Stoker applied to join the fledgling Australian Navy, which had purchased two of the newest and largest E-class submarines. Stoker was also a formidable submarine commander. That wicked sense of humour, which combined with steely determination to have a go, he was straight from central casting for the Australian ethos. C.J. Brodie, a fellow Dardanelles submarine officer, described Stoker as the best of companions with an eye like a hawk for a ball or a periscope. He would have been the choice of any board of generals, historians or novelists for a dashing enterprise. More important, he would have been the choice of all of his own crew and his old messmates. So, Greg, the newest Royal Australian Navy had two submarines, AEs-1 and AE-2. Uh, what was to be their wartime role? Well, the submarines left England in early 1914 and they arrived in Australia in, in May of that year. Uh, and, of course, war breaks out in August, so they've only been in Australia a few months. Uh, the decisions made uh, to uh, capture German New Guinea. And so the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force, uh, naval reservists and uh, soldiers are embarked in a troop ship and escorted by the Royal Australian Navy to take part in capturing uh, the German seat of government, uh, Rabaul, on the island of New Britain. The two submarines are also sent to take part in this activity. Um, they sail north uh, with uh, two other ships, Protector and Upalu, the submarine uh, uh, depot ship Upalu to look after them. Uh, but they're a little bit slow and they don't arrive uh, in German New Guinea at Rabaul until the 12th of September. All the fighting on land has taken place the day before. Uh, but the location of the German um, East Asian fleet under von Spee is unknown and so there's concern that uh, German warships might be in the area. So the submarines are used for patrol work in the, uh, uh, the, in the New Britain area. And that's where unfortunately on the uh, 14th of September 1914, AE1 is lost uh, during a, uh, a diving incident. Peter Briggs, in 2017, and following on from Greg's point there, we released uh, an Australian Naval History episode on the 1914 Rabaul campaign, which listeners may wish to go back to. But can you briefly tell us the role of A1 and A2 in that operation? Yes, they were used to guard the anchorage, as Greg says, against the, the possibility that the German cruisers would uh, come upon it and, and attack the ships whilst they were landing and uh, operating ashore. Uh, so they went out each day. Uh, AE2 took the first patrol on the 13th and uh, in company with the destroyer. Uh, on the 14th, AE1 sailed with Parramatta. And as we now know, uh, they separated at 2.30 in the afternoon, AE1 to go back to Rabaul. But uh, en route, they took a practice dive and suffered a diving incident, uh, which 
cause the submarine to lose control, go beyond its crush depth, uh, and the submarine and its 35 crew now lie on the bottom off the Duke of York Islands. Greg Swindon, with the capture of Rabaul, followed soon after by the destruction of the German East Asia squadron off the Falklands and the sinking of the Emden, indeed, by HMAS Sydney, what was the new strategic plan for the Australian fleet, including AE2? I'll need to backtrack a little bit there, Rob. Um, Rabaul's captured, Germany New Guinea becomes uh, Australian territory. Uh, HMAS Australia operates in, that's the battle cruiser, the largest ship in the RAN at the time, operates in the uh, central and eastern Pacific, searching for, for Von Spey and, and his ships. Uh, they're always a little bit behind and they miss the Battle of, of the Falklands. But then Australia uh, uh, finds and sinks a German uh, merchant ship that's been supporting Von Spey and then goes on to England uh, through the Atlantic to join the uh, second battle cruiser squadron uh, in the UK and work with the Royal Navy for the next uh, you know, three years. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne uh, escorting the uh, first AIF convoy across the Indian Ocean. Uh, as is well known, Sydney's uh, sent to uh, investigate a strange warship sighting at Cocos Island, uh, which is found to be the Emden, and uh, the Emden is destroyed in that action by the Sydney. Sydney and Melbourne continue to escort the uh, first AIF uh, to the Middle East, and then they proceed across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, which some might say is you know, a nice place to be during the war. But uh, the reason they were sent there is uh, there are a number of neutral countries in the Caribbean area, particularly the United States that had not entered the war at that stage. And German merchant ships were uh, holed up in various ports. And the Australian cruisers were part of a force that was to keep those, those German merchant ships uh, contained in ports so they could not get back to Germany with their valuable cargoes and also in the event that uh, the Germans armed some of those ships and turned them into uh, raiders uh, there'd be warships there to, to deal with them. They eventually uh, in late 1916 joined up with uh, Australia in the North Sea. Uh, one of our other cruisers, Pioneer, was sent to uh, operate off the coast of German East Africa with British forces. Uh, blockading the Refugi River where Konigsberg, which was a sister ship to, to Emden, uh, was holed up again to stop her getting out into the Indian Ocean and attacking our sea lines of communication. Generally though, most of the Australian warships were being sent overseas. Australia was now becoming a backwater for the war and AE2, it was decided that it was far more valuable to have a modern E-class submarine in the Mediterranean. And so she sailed with uh, the second AIF convoy to the Middle East uh, in December of 1914, uh, arriving in, uh, in the Mediterranean uh, in early 1915 and being attached then to the British Navy. So Elizabeth Brinchley, A2 sails with the second AIF into the Mediterranean. And in your book, you talk about Stoker's efforts to bring AE2 into a, a theatre where we should, she would likely see some action. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, Stoker felt frustrated back in Sydney. Um, he wanted to see action. He wrote to the Australian Naval Board arguing that AE2 should accompany the second Australian expeditionary force in the Middle East, then join the Royal Navy manoeuvres, as Greg has said. He wrote that he thought Britain might 
also help Australia replace its lost sub in return. With this argument, he gained permission to meet the Minister for Defence, Senator George Pearce. Today, such a meeting would be impossible. Stoker travelled to Melbourne where the fledgling federal government was temporarily based. The Defence Minister met Stoker behind the Speaker's chair in the then House of Representatives to negotiate the future deployment of AE2. Stoker's daring pitch worked and the Australian Naval Board cabled the Admiralty, offering AE2's services. Amazingly, the AE2 was the only warship to accompany the Second Expeditionary Forces convoy, which arrived in Suez on January 27, 1915. AE2 had notched up 48,000 kilometres in under a year, a new record. In Egypt, the Admiralty ordered Stoker to join its forces gathering off the Dardanelles. The British War Council had previously decided on a naval expedition to bombard and take the Gallipoli Peninsula with Constantinople as its objective. Well, Greg, that brings us to the Dardanelles campaign. And in your book, First In, Last Out, you describe the Navy's involvement in that campaign. Can you outline the key features of the campaign and the Navy's role? Well, the Navy is involved in a number of activities off the Dardanelles. Uh, very early in the, uh, after the outbreak of war, two German warships, uh, the Breslau and Goben, had escaped from the Mediterranean through the Dardanelles and had uh, joined up with the Ottoman Empire and became Ottoman Empire uh, warships. So British warships were stationed off the entrance to the Dardanelles to prevent those two German, well now Ottoman Empire warships, uh, breaking out into the Mediterranean and attacking shipping. There was also the activity where uh, uh, the plan was to send a number of British and French warships through the Dardanelles, uh, uh, break through and then threaten uh, Constantinople, modern day Istanbul, uh, and try and force Turkey out of the war. Uh, there was an attack on the 18th of March of 1915, which unfortunately was a dismal failure due to uh, the fact that the Turks had mined the Dardanelles and several of those warships struck those mines and were unable to, uh, uh, and several of them sank and then they retreated. They were unable to break through due to the minefields. The plan was then to sweep the minefields to allow the warships to go through. Uh, Minesweepers mine were sent through the Dardanelles, but of course they came under fire by Turkish uh, shore batteries. Uh, in order to conduct the minesweeping, the, the shore batteries had to be destroyed, and which led on to the land campaign where the plan was to land troops, basically capture the, the Gallipoli Peninsula to take out or remove the threat of the, uh, the shore batteries, allow the minesweepers to do their job, and then allow the warships to go through and threaten Constantinople. As we well know, that, that failed, uh, but initially Gallipoli was a naval campaign or a maritime campaign to uh, force Turkey out of the war. Once the Australian and British and French troops had landed, uh, the Navy was there to basically get them in, provide the logistic support for them whilst they were there, and eventually when the evacuation occurred to get them out. They also provided naval gunfire support for a number of the attacks that uh, were going on. And even after the land campaign in Gallipoli had ended, the naval campaign continued on, basically you know, uh, firing at uh, Turkish positions, getting the submarines 
which I'm sure we've spoken about later, through the, uh, the Dardanelles to attack Turkish shipping, but also most importantly to keep the Goban and Breslau bottled up in the Sea of Marmara and also a number of German U-boats that have made their way through there as well to keep them uh, bottled up as well. So the Navy played a significant role across a wide range of activities during that Gallipoli campaign. Well, Peter Briggs, Greg has uh, talked uh, briefly about putting submarines through the Dardanelles. How difficult, difficult would it have been to, to take a submarine through the Dardanelles and how did the early attempts fare? Very difficult. Uh, it's a challenging bit of navigation with strong currents uh, sweeping through narrow channels and swirling around so you get pushed left and right. Remember the submarine, when it's dived, it can see, observe navigationally at periscope depth, which limits your range. Uh, but once it's deep, below periscope depth, it's completely blind and it's relying on its, its compass and its log to, to figure out dead reckon where it is. Uh, the penetration was made much more difficult because of the lines of mines that were laid and very effectively turned back the surface ships on the 18th of March. Um, so these had to be penetrated. And the minefields and the straits indeed were guarded by extensive fortifications and uh, batteries of field artillery. So you, the surface was a very dangerous place to be. Uh, the French submarine Safir attempted the, to penetrate the Dardanelles and was lost on the 5th of January 1915. And that was followed by E-15. Uh, on the 17th of April, the submarine was swept ashore Commanding officer and six crewmen were killed and the remainder were taken prisoners of war. And so it was against that backdrop that Stoker volunteered, indeed um, advocated, to be, to be let uh, to try a, a third attempt to get through the Dardanelles. Following on from that, Peter, on the 25th of April 1915, the first Anzac Day, of course, Stoker did manage to get AE2 through the Dardanelles defences. As a submariner, what's your assessment of his achievement? Uh, quite brilliant. The uh, Stoker had tried on the 24th and they had a, a, a defect which forced him back. So the 25th was his second attempt. Uh, he was told to go in because that was the morning of the landings. He was told to go in and create a diversion. Uh, so not only did you have this difficult navigation uh, and minefield penetration to complete, now he had to attract attention to himself. Uh, removing, you know, one of his, his major uh, defences, which was the stealth. Um, he was secondly told to uh, attack potential Turkish mine layers up in the Narrows in case they were dropping floating mines and these would drift down on the ships that may be used later in the day to bombard the, the shore. Uh, so Stoker had an extraordinarily uh, difficult set of orders to comply with uh, and he set off on the surface uh, with the intention of drawing attention to himself, dived once he was uh, uh, being attacked by artillery, having succeeded in the first job, got up into the narrows, penetrated the minefields, uh, going underneath the mines, but on two occasions he had to come up to periscope depth to take navigational observations, he had to come up through the mines uh, and he talks about 40 minutes of scraping wires. For 40 minutes, the scraping of wires was continuous. 
and from time to time something would catch forward and bump, bump, bump its way along the submarine till it, it floated off the stern. These were mines. They were catching the wires, pulling the mines down on top of the submarine. Fortunately, the horns are all pointing up and the mines didn't detonate, uh, but they calmly went on through the minefield. And when he comes back to periscope depth at the third occasion, he's through the minefield. Uh, he stays at periscope depth to see what's happening and to create the diversion. He spots uh, a ship which he believes to be a mine layer. And as his periscope's being charged by uh, several uh, Ottoman destroyers, uh, Stoker calmly fires a torpedo at the mine layer and is forced deep to avoid a collision. And here's the, the explosion of the torpedo uh, once he's down at safe depth. The explosion shakes the submarine significantly. It's not very far away. And that upsets the gyro compass, which stops working. So Stoker is now in the middle of the narrows with the whole area thoroughly uh, alert without his main, his primary heading source. He's got to rely on an unreliable uh, magnetic compass. Nonetheless, he presses on, presses on. Uh, the submarine is swept aground underneath the guns of the fort, happily so close that the guns can't depress to hit him. Stoker calmly gets the submarine off the grounding and manoeuvres back into the centre of the strait and turns to continue up the strait, but runs aground even more heavily on the other side, again underneath the guns of the defending fort. On this occasion, he just drives ahead and drives bump, bump, bump the submarine over the, the, the sandbank into deeper water, damaging it as he does so. So he starts to, the submarine starts to leak. He continues up the narrows, uh, attracting great attention and comes across unawares for him, but he's, his periscope is sighted by a Turkish battleship that's just started bombarding the Anzac landing beaches by firing over the peninsula, forcing the landing ships further offshore uh, and threatening the beaches. When Stoker turns up, the ship, the battleship packs up and leaves. And Stoker continues up the narrows with one or two more observations until with a, a flat battery, having extended all his dived endurance, he puts the submarine on the bottom to wait for dark to try and escape. Quite an extraordinary uh, exploit on as a submariner, just amazing. This would be a difficult task for a modern submarine with inertial navigation systems, GPS and sonars. Quite extraordinary for a submarine of the capability of AE2 to press on against all these obstacles and to achieve the, the entry. And Elizabeth, having got through to the Sea of Mamara, what success did A2 and Stoker have thereafter? Oblivious of their role in the Gallipoli evacuation drama and the wireless message they didn't know had got through, the bruised and battled A2 enjoyed a short-lived sense of achievement in having entered the Sea of Marmara. On the 26th of April 1915, more daunting issues were to be faced. Primarily, A2's role was to try and prevent the passage of enemy troops and supplies to the Gallipoli Peninsula. 
The main problem was that A2 carried no guns and only a few torpedoes, described by Stoker as not the most modern type. On the first day in the Mamara, he sighted several columns of smoke ahead of approaching Turkish ships. Stoker aimed at one of these ships, but his torpedo either narrowly missed or the ship's shallow draft saved her. Stoker then turned to a popular pastime for the A2 and future Allied submarines, scaring Turkish fishermen. He sailed up to a flotilla of small boats, causing them to panic and scatter. The action succeeded in causing just that effect, but by nightfall Turkish patrol boats were closing in and A2 was forced to dive. Six, six Turkish craft had indeed been detailed to harass the submarine, which they continued to do. One Turkish warship moved so close to A2 on the surface, it narrowly avoided a hit on its conning tower. Next day was Karma. A transport came into view heading for Gallipoli with two guarding destroyers. Stoker fired the second last of his torpedoes, but disaster struck. The torpedo rose quietly and puffed to the surface and lay motionless. Its engine had failed to start. Faulty torpedoes were common in E-class submarines of the time. Disappointed, Stoker took A to under 18 metres so that the crew could rest. Next morning, Stoker took the submarine up to the centre of the Sea of Marmara to get a closer look at the entrance to Istanbul. His plan was to launch an attack the next day. Returning towards Gallipoli, Stoker tried several tricks to convince the Turks that more Allied subs were present. He dived under and turned and rose and up the periscope to sail back again into the Mamara, confusing the, the Turkish ships. The next recorded starboard torpedo strike by A2 was made the same day on a Turkish gunboat, on a Turkish gunboat. Conflicting reports mention a possible hit. Later on the surface and heading back towards Istanbul, A2 spotted the periscope of an approaching submarine. It was the E-14. Stoker and A2 had by this stage been solo in the Mamara for five days. Lieutenant Commander Boyle of E-14 had been ordered to follow A2. Immediately, A2 signal had been received on the 25th of April. The two captains conferred. Boyle was the senior officer. He refused to give Stoker any of his torpedoes, dissuaded Stoker in proceeding with his plan to attack Istanbul, and ordered Stoker to rendezvous with E-14 at the same spot the next day at 10 a.m. It was a fateful decision. Returning as ordered the next day, A2 ran into a Turkish torpedo boat, the Sultan Hisar. Diving to avoid the gunboat, A2 malfunctioned and instead rose, dived again out of control, then rose again. It was a terrifying nightmare. A2 was defenceless. It carried no guns and was in no position to fire its remaining torpedo. A2 could not submerge. The crew leapt overboard and tanks were flooded. Stoker 
was the last to leave the sinking sub. All hands were taken aboard the Sultan Hisar. A2's success in the Sea of Mamara was twofold. Stoker followed his instructions to run amok, creating panic, chaos and delays among Turkish supply vessels heading for Gallipoli. Secondly, it forced the Turks to stop sending reinforcements and supplies by sea as they feared the loss of shipping. Instead, they sent men and supplies by land, causing costly delays. Finally, A2's success in reaching the Sea of Mamara led to the following deployment of other British submarines, including the E-14. The Australian submarine had made history. Peter, I'm going to ask you in a minute about those uh, other submarines, but before I do, Greg, can I ask you, Elizabeth mentioned a wireless message. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, it's probably the, the wireless message that may have been heard around the world. Uh, once uh, AE2 had got through the Dardanelles, they surfaced and uh, Stoker got his uh, telegraphist, uh, telegraphist William Falconer, uh, one of the Australians of the crew, the crew was 50-50 British and Australian, uh, to rig the, uh, the wireless equipment and uh, send the signal back uh, to the uh, Royal Navy that they had broken through the Dardanelles. Uh, that signal was sent. Uh, they attempted to get a, uh, a confirmation signal that it had been received, uh, but they kept sending it, uh, not knowing that it had in fact been received and received at a vital time during the Gallipoli campaign. The Anzacs had been landed uh, and fighting had been quite hard on that first day. Uh, They'd penetrated probably a thousand metres inland and were facing a very difficult countryside and, uh, and a pretty difficult uh, defence from the Turkish soldiers uh, on the Gallipoli Peninsula. There were a number of casualties. They were disorganised. Uh, they were facing uh, resilient troops defending their homeland. And it was strongly recommended by the uh, senior officers ashore that they be evacuated. Uh, at this time, uh, a conference was going on on board the uh, major British battleship where uh, General Ian Hamilton, in charge of the entire land campaign, was discussing the possibility of evacuating the Anzacs uh, from uh, their landing places. Uh, and at that point, the signal from AE2 arrives. Um, Hamilton reads the signal and makes the decision that there will be no evacuation, despite the fact that many of his senior officers were strongly recommending that that take place. Uh, Hamilton then sends a signal to uh, General Birdwood, who's commanding the Australians and New Zealanders ashore, saying that you've got through the difficult part, now you just need to dig, dig, dig until you are safe. So basically, if AE2 had not got through the Dardanelles, if the signal that uh, telegraphist Falconer had sent had not been reached, there it most likely would have been that the Gallipoli campaign would have been three days, they would have evacuated the troops and have not stayed for the eight months. So it was a very, very important signal arriving just at the right time for a decision to be made. Whether that was the right decision, is not for me to say. Peter Briggs, as Elizabeth 
also mentioned other submarines did try to emulate AE-2's entry into the Sea of Mamara. Did they have any more luck? Uh, yes. But once the, of course, the submarines that followed were not told to run amok in the narrows. They were able to keep out of sight and, and do the penetration. They just had to concentrate on the navigation rather than trying to draw attention to themselves and to attack shipping in the narrows. So they, were, they had a significantly easier task and they had one which they knew had been achieved by AE2. Um, the 10 submarines managed to get into the Sea of Marmara, including AE2 and, and uh, E14, as we, we've heard. E14 and E11 were, were very successful. Um, submarines were fitted with a light gun, and that was very useful against uh, small craft. And at the end of the campaign, 10 submarines had been uh, had penetrated the Narrows, operated in the Sea of Marmara, had destroyed 242 uh, Turk Ottoman ships, many of them quite small, uh, but nonetheless important in ferrying supplies. And seven of the 18 submarines that were involved in the attempt, seven had been lost. So it was not an inexpensive campaign, uh, but it, it had a significant impact, as Elizabeth has said, forcing the Ottoman reinforcements to travel by land. They arrived much later than if they'd been sitting on a ship, far more tired, of course. Uh, and there are some daring accounts of submarines with guns attacking trains, which is a, an interesting, with their gun, of course, uh, interesting to, to imagine. So it was, it was a, the first uh, submarine campaign and quite an innovative one in, in developing uh, new tactics and new weapons for the submarines. Elizabeth Brenchley, Stoker and his crew were then taken into captivity. Can you talk a little bit about what happened to them then? After sinking the A2, all the crew were picked up by Turkish Captain Risa of the gunboat Sultan Hissar. Dripping wet, they were taken as prisoners of war to Istanbul. There they were given dry old Turkish uniforms and paraded derisively through the streets. Stoker was the main target. He, he, he was under interrogation soon after, alternatively threatened and cajoled for hours for information, which he did not reveal. The crew was then moved by rail to Afyon Karahisa in central Turkey, a remote inland rail junction, recently cleansed of its Armenian population. Stoker described the conditions as indescribable filth with no facilities. The crew slept, ate and sat in huts with a bare floor in freezing conditions. He called the camp living hell, full of vermin and rats. There was no news of Gallipoli or the withdrawal. Officers and men were then separated. The crew were put to work as labourers on road making. All were underfed. After five months, Stoker and Lieutenant Geoffrey Fitzgerald of HMS E15 were offered as exchange prisoners, probably through Vatican influence, thinking that being Irish, both were Catholics. Still confined to a cell, they were pumped for information. Fitzgerald, a Catholic, was released in exchange for Turkish POWs, but Stoker, because he was Protestant, was quickly returned to prison. Stoker was determined to escape and together with Captain Archibald Cochrane of the E7 and Lieutenant Price 
of E7 hatched a plan. They spent 11 days on the run in mountainous and uninhabited country and were starving and hallucinating when they were recaptured and sent into solitary confinement for five months. Stoker was then sent to a POW camp at Yozgat, deep in Asia Minor. Lieutenant Price died there. By the end of 1915, nearly all the AE2 crew were shipped first to Kankiri, an agricultural centre close to Ankara, then on to Bellamedic, a forced labour camp at the remote, in the remote Taurus Mountains in southeastern Turkey. Bellamedic was the main construction camp for the German Berlin to Baghdad Railway, being built for the supply of Middle Eastern oil and military supplies for the Turks and Germans. It was a terrible place in such inhospitable terrain that no fences were necessary. The men froze in winter snow and collapsed with malaria, dysentery and meningitis in summer. Four of the A2 men died there. The survivors were walking skeletons by 1918. The A2 men survived three and a half years of appalling conditions. One reason that they survived was that they were mostly young, fit men, useful to the Germans as trained technicians, and because they were a bonded group of disciplined men who were able to some degree to look out for each other. In Yozgat, Stoker, with his optimism and humour, turned his talents into morale-raising among his mixed bag of fellow officers. He wrote plays, devised musical evenings, acted, directed and produced plays in evenings at entertainment as well as sporting events. Well, Greg Swindon, it's also important that we mention some of the other crew members of AE2 and their service both in the submarine and then in captivity. Who might we talk about? Well, Elizabeth mentioned that four of the AE2 personnel died during captivity uh, building the railway, you know, shades of World War II with another number of Australians dying building a railway. Uh, four of those men who died, Chief Petty Officer Varco was the first to die. He died from meningitis and he was the, the senior sailor in, in AE2 and a father figure to many of the younger men. So his, his death was, was, um, was a great loss to their organisation. Uh, two more men died from uh, typhus, that was Petty Officer Gilbert and Able Seaman Nags. Uh, Nags actually wrote uh, an extensive diary of his time as a POW, which is now at the Australian War Memorial. So uh, he'd managed to survive even though he didn't. The saddest of the deaths though was, um, was uh, Stoker uh, Michael Williams, uh, born in Dunkelder down near Hamilton in Victoria. Uh, he was from a large Catholic family, uh, had four sons. Uh, all four sons died during the war. One was killed at Gallipoli. Uh, Bill Williams uh, died uh, from malaria, uh, although there are some theories that he may have been a bunch, amongst a bunch of POWs who were so badly sick that they were done away with by Turks, but that could not be proven, although his body was never recovered at the end of the war. And his other two brothers uh, died in France in 1917 and 1918. So that was um, quite sad, four family members dying during the war. Um, Stoker managed to escape uh, a couple of times, but uh, you know, basically had to give himself up uh, when they were basically out of food. Um, what, a couple of the other uh, AE2 men also escaped. Uh, John Wheat, 
uh, escaped twice. Uh, on the first occasion, he took um, uh, Alexander Nicholas, who was or Nichols from uh, AE2, with him, and the second time he took Stoker Cullen. Um, they were on the run for nearly three weeks on on both uh, their escapes. They had to give themselves up when they basically ran out of food, and also. You know, being white men in the Middle East, they stood out uh, and they didn't speak any of the Ottoman language. But they did try to make an escape attempt to get to the, uh, to the western coast of Turkey in order to steal a boat and try and get uh, out to the, the Greek islands. Uh, so we lost four men from AE2. Uh, three of those men are now buried uh, oddly enough, in the North uh, Gate Cemetery in Baghdad at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission Cemetery there. Uh, originally, they were buried at Bellymedic. Uh, poor old Bill Williams, his body was never recovered at the end of the war. Uh, and uh, there's a special memorial for him at uh, the Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery in Baghdad as well. Well, Peter Briggs, from talking about the ship's company of A2, how about A2 herself? Was the wreck of A2 ever relocated? Uh, yes, uh, the wreck was relocated by a, a Turkish uh, maritime archaeologist and wreck hunter, Sertuk Kole, uh, and subsequent to that, uh, examined, uh, confirmed it was AE2. Uh, 19, 1988, I think, Elizabeth. And uh, we then uh, formed the AE2 Commemorative Foundation uh, and raised uh, sponsor by sponsorship and Commonwealth grant uh, the money to undertake a survey of AE2 in 2008 and to follow that up in 2014 with a, a complete uh, internal, external survey and the internal examination using remotely operated vehicles with cameras which examined the forward half of AE2, uh, fitted a lockable hatch so that... Uh, it's not uh, that vulnerable to, to plunder. Uh, and a protective navigation buoy was laid over the top of it. And most importantly, we added a cathodic protection system, which will preserve the submarine. It's sitting on the bottom in 73 metres, uh, where it was sunk by Sultan Hissar uh, in 1915. Well, Peter, as a follow-on question, is, is, is that sort of the end of the story with how A2 should be preserved? Is there anything else we need to do? Well, I think it's worth reflecting on, on what we've just gone through. This 800-tonne submarine with a crew of 32 achieved some quite dramatic strategic impacts. Uh, it diverted attention on the, the morning of the landing, so it, it gave some breathing time for the Anzacs scaling the heights. It forced the battleship about to bombard the beaches to move away. Uh, the signal uh, had a major impact on the course of their campaign, and indeed, could say we could say set the the scene for the Anzac legend. Uh, in the Sea of Marmara, uh, Stoker was quite effective in disrupting the critical transport of troops in this first few days. Uh, so, without Stoker being in there in AE2, there would have been far more uh, Turkish troops to Ottoman troops to throw back uh, the the Anzacs. And finally, he initiates a campaign, which in the end sinks to over 240 uh, Ottoman ships and, and really disrupts the resupply by sea. Um, so AE2 is, is very symbolic 
and uh, I think it's a it's a key uh, it's a touchstone that that future generations should have the opportunity to to enjoy and reflect on um, the preservation via the cathodic protection system will mean that it could still be there in 100 years in in good order, uh, provided we continue to replace those anodes every 10 to, to 12 years. And that's a current uh, campaign that we are endeavouring to mount. So finally, Elizabeth Brenchley, the name Stoker, of course, will always be linked with AE2, but can you tell us a bit about what he went on to do after World War One? Post-war Stoker returned to the Royal Navy in 1919 on half pay. In December that year, he learned he had been appointed captain of HMS Royal Arthur, the depot ship for the Atlantic submarine flotilla. However, Stoker had doubts about his naval future. He took six months leave on half pay and signed an acting contract with director Norman McKinnell of the Royal Theatre. In October 1920, he asked the Admiralty to put him on the retired list. On leaving the Navy, he ditched his pseudonym of Hugh Gordon in, in compliance with naval wishes and appeared as H.G. Stoker in his first London play, A Social Conscience. He quickly carved out a niche playing character roles as officers, a doctor and even Watson to Sherlock Holmes. In the play, The Eleventh Commandment, he met the beautiful actress Dorothy Pidcock Pegg, whom he later married. They were happy together for 41 years. Stoker had had to divorce his first wife, Olive, in 1919. She had had a child with a lover while Stoker was a POW. In the mid-1920s, Stoker's career blossomed and he wrote his best-selling book, Straws in the Wind, about AE2, with excellent reviews. Visiting New York in 1922, playing in John Goldsworthy's loyalties, the local press seized on his naval career and the story of AE2. Loyalty was a New York hit and Stoker a celebrity. Back in London in 1928, Stoker launched into his most famous role as a colonel in H.G. Sheriff's Journey's End. It was a huge success with critical acclaim for Stoker, and Laurence Olivier was also in the cast. One evening, all Britain's VCs attended, a nod by them to Stoker, whom they thought should have also been awarded the honour. In 1932, Stoker co-wrote a successful West End play, Below the Surface, based on the A2 story. Throughout the 1930s, Stoker spread his talents to other media, in 1932, he made his first BBC radio broadcast of the play Hazard about AE2 and then The Fourth Man about his escape attempt. His first film appearance was Channel Crossing, 1933, then Brown on Resolution, 1935, with Sir John Mills. Renamed Forever England, it is still shown on Australian TV around Anzac Day. He made eight films in all. His second career reached a pinnacle in the 1930s. He became manager of the Repertory Players and in 1938, manager of the Apollo Theatre. In 1939, Stoker was recalled to active service at the age of 54. The Navy appointed him commander of HMS Minos, 
the naval base at Lowestoft, which was the minesweeper and gunboat operations base against the Germans in the North Sea. Lowestoft was heavily bombed during the war, and by 1942, after two years' service, he was exhausted, but the Admiralty still wanted him as a media advisor. In 1944, he was appointed to the staff of Navy Command for the Allied Expeditionary Force for the Invasion of Europe, ANCXE. The 59-year-old Stoker was present at one of the most momentous meetings of World War II, the May 15, 1944 Final Conference of Military Chiefs to approve Neptune, code for the Navy's landing, the huge Allied army for Overlord, the invasion of Europe. Present with Stoker are all the great names, Eisenhower, Montgomery, Churchill, and King George VI. After D-Day, Stoker returned to the fleet to brief officers and crew on the upcoming operations against the Japanese in the Pacific. Still not ready to retire, Stoker returned to civilian life eventually in new West End plays and co-wrote another escape drama at the Adelphi Theatre, Morning Departure. It was made later into a film starring Sir John Mills. TV was next. He co-wrote a TV drama called Deep Water, a psychological thriller, which one reviewer called First Class TV. Stoker worked in TV and for the BBC until the late 1950s. Dacre Stoker died in February 1966 in London, aged 81. So before we conclude, may I ask each of you if you have any final thoughts? Greg, let me go to you first. AE2 has a place in Australian history uh, forever. But also AE2 and AE1 were our first submarines, wise decisions by you know, senior officers in those days. And that created the submarine history for the RAN. They were lost, but then we got the J class at the end of the war given to us by the British. Then we had the O class during the mid 1920s, early 1930s, followed by the Oberon class, now followed by the Collins class to be followed in the future by the attack class. So AE1 and AE2 set the standard and created that need for submarines for the RAN. And Peter Briggs, any final thoughts from you? Yes, this is an extraordinary story. Uh, Stoker and AE2 and the two uh, go together. Uh, Stoker drives the, the, the agenda. Stoker goes to Melbourne to see the Minister of Defence, gets the submarine, permission of the submarine, go back to the Mediterranean. It's Stoker who writes the plan to penetrate the Dardanelles and then goes ahead and does it uh, after two other submarines have been sunk. Uh, it's Stoker who creates an AE-2, create the diversion, drive off the battleship, send that fateful signal, uh, operate on the Sea of Marmara and holding up Turkish reinforcements and initiate the submarine campaign that sinks 242 ships. This is a marvellous story and one that uh, Australia uh, and its Navy should celebrate. Thanks, Peter. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Elizabeth Brenchley, Peter Briggs and Greg Swindon. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.